This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Now, we're here to talk about low pay and low paid work of different forms um, this morning. And we're mainly going to be taking a long view, looking at the past, particularly over the last few decades, and actually ahead at what the next decade would, should, would bring on low pay, but also what it should bring on low pay, asking what has the minimum wage done over the last few decades, but also what should we be doing when we think about the wider question of what the job is of policymakers looking to increase the benefits of work to those on uh, low pay, and where would that go beyond the minimum wage? Now, I'm conscious that's like looking at several decades. Most people in public policy or just who are good humans who are concerned about what's happening to those on lower incomes right now are worried about something that's happening kind of right here, right now, with Ofgem having announced yesterday a huge increase in the uh, energy price cap. And it's all very well talking about wages going up a bit in future, but people are more worried about their costs surging right now. They, um, so just to say there is a um, Resolution Foundation report on what the Chancellor should do in the next few days coming out in, well, I don't know when they, hopefully in the next hour and a half. So we, we can talk on that about that a bit, the, um, but we've been working overnight to make sure that gets out into the public debate, and that, so that and that doesn't detract from the importance of these longer-term questions, because in the long run, hopefully at some point we'll get energy costs under control, and at that point we need to be sorting out all this other stuff, people. So that is the plan uh, for this morning. Now we've got a great panel to do that. First of all, Nai Komanetti, who's our uh, senior economist at the foundation and has published our. Is our 12th or 14th or something? 12th annual Low Pay Britain report today, which is what we're going to be mainly telling you a bit about, is going to give us a presentation of those findings. And we should say thank you to some of his co-authors from LSE, uh, because this is part of a wider project between us and LSE on the future of the UK uh, economy, hopefully funded by the Nuffield Foundation. So thanks to them. And then you're going to hear from Aaron Doop, who's Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts and has done lots of the world-leading work on the impact of minimum wage rises or lack of rises in uh, in some cases and is we're very glad is uh, in the UK and is going to give us his reflections and maybe help us stop being totally parochial slight danger in the UK of everyone just saying haven't we done well look at those minimum wage surges um, and we have done well everyone before you get depressed but that isn't all that's to be done and then to make sure that we don't just say we've done well we're going to hear from Kate Bell head of economics and social affairs at the TUC um, who will give us a, a reflections on maybe what should be the priorities and what is possible in terms of further progress for the low paid. And then, as always, you'll be able to ask your questions on Slido. Can you log in? When I'm looking at my phone, it's because I'm looking at your questions. It's not because I'm a complete shit. Okay, and it's hashtag low pay. You need to be typing in to find the right thing. If you want to ask questions in the room, the hand works like this. You put it up, uh, and that is how the world used to work. Remember? Right, that is the plan. Nice. Kick us off. We don't damage our workers, by the way. He did this. He did this in his own time. It wasn't a breach of health and safety. Made one chart too many. You made one chart. Have too a word, many. Nye. <laughs> off you go, Nye. Uh, thanks very much. All right. So this will be a three-parter. Uh, a couple of slides on what's happening right now. Um, but as Thorsten said, this report is mainly about what's been happening in the longer term. So looking at the uh, 25 years since the minimum wage came in, what what impact that's had, um, and then some reflections about what next. So it's sort of the opposite of a good news sandwich. It's a bit of a, a bad news sandwich. It goes sort of bad, good, and then some challenges. Um, so first of all, right now, so the, like I said, it's not the focus of the report, but it would be remiss of us not to reflect on quite how difficult things are right now um, for the lowest paid. So 
we know that the, in some senses, the um, labor mar market recovery from COVID was, was quick. So here's one way of showing that. This is an employment rate for different occupation groups. And you can sort of construct that by looking at the occupation of people in work now and the occupation of people who are unemployed, but what was the occupation that they did when they were last in work. So it gives you a sense of how high unemployment is for different groups. And you can see that it fell very rapidly um, from uh, winter 2020 onwards throughout 2021. So we didn't, we didn't get the uh, you know, end of furlough uptick that we were very worried about. So that was definitely uh, good news. But of course, uh, 2022 has brought very uh, different problems. Um, inflation's at 9% and inflation's higher for the lowest income groups. I think 11% uh, the IFS calculated. Um, and unfortunately, on top of that, we seem to be having uh, an emerging wage inequality problem. So this is the uh, HMRC's RTI monthly pay numbers, its annual growth at different points in the distribution. So on top of very high inflation, uh, seemingly it's, it's worse for, for those low earners. Probably take these numbers with a bit of a pinch of salt because there will be some composition changes going on here. We know that there have been some self-employed workers moving into employee jobs so that could be driving what's happening at the top there. If, if, you know, if those self-employed workers were high paid as self-employed workers and are now high paid as employees, that, that could be what's happening there. Right, so on to the long view. So this is definitely the uh, positive part of the presentation. So um, the context is a fast rising minimum wage. I'm sure you're all uh, familiar with a chart like this. Um, this shows you the bite of the adult rate minimum wage compared to um, um, median, median hourly pay. And this is the main way that we tend to measure how high the minimum wage is. So you can see that it went up fairly gradually in its first 15 years of its life. And then the government introduced national living wage in 2016. They went up uh, quite rapidly in that year. They were actually two up ratings. And then since then, we've had two target phases. So the first one uh, was to reach a bite of 60% by 2020, if that was reached. And the Low Pay Commission put out a report yesterday with some reflections on, on what impact that had had. Um, but we're now in a new phase where the target is to reach two thirds of median hourly pay by 2024. Um, it'll be a while until we have good enough pay data to show to plot exactly where we are on that path. But that dotted line on the end there gives a sense of, sort of how quickly the bite is going to be increasing in the next couple of years to, to take us up to that level. So that's what we've done to the minimum wage. Um, and the most direct impact and the clearest impact has been on low pay. Uh, now, you can measure low pay in different ways. Uh, one of the most commonly used measures is people whose hourly pay is below two thirds of the median. That's uh, something that the OECD used to compare countries. Um, and yeah, it's just a really striking impact that the national living wage has had since 2016. So we had basically no change in low pay for about 20 years before that. So we had the rising minimum wage, but it wasn't taking people above this low pay threshold. Um, but since 2016, that number has been falling uh, quite rapidly. And the latest data point here is for 2021. And so that's only one year into this new target phase. So I expect that number to, to keep falling quite quickly. Um, there is a, obviously a, a similarity here between how we're measuring low pay and the minimum wage target. So you might think that number is going to fall to zero because we're going to be setting the minimum wage at two thirds of value pay. That won't quite happen because here we're looking at all workers. The minimum wage target is for workers in that age category. So that number is not going to go to zero, but I do expect it to keep falling quite quickly for the next couple of years. Um, other ways of measuring low pay, we used to look at this line a bit more often than we do now, mainly because it's, it's been flat, but this is 
something that we used to call extreme low pay. It's another relative measure. So this is people with hourly um, pay below half of the median. And you can see why there was you know, a, a clamor for a minimum wage when it was introduced in the late 90s, because this was something that was getting worse through to the 90s. Um, but it was something that was, was dealt with by those for, uh, early increases in the minimum wage. And then finally, a, a different way of measuring low pay is, is the number of workers earning below the area-specific real living wage. And again, that has been falling in the, in the most recent years. So lots of encouraging news on rates of low hourly pay. Um, what, so obviously, that is that's good news. And we know that the minimum wage can have this sort of positive direct effect. Um, economists spend lots of time worrying about the indirect effects, in particular, the potential negative ones. Uh, so Aaron's report in 2019 you know, provided the sort of intellectual boosters for this current phase by arguing that there hadn't been employment effects or that they'd been very minimal. So we don't think there have been we don't think that low paid workers are less likely to be in work now. We don't think there have been particularly big effects on their hours either. Here, I just wanted to look at another one of these potential negative side effects that we sometimes worry about. So we know that overall wage inequality has been coming down. That's what happens when you lift the wage floor. One thing that we sometimes worry about is wage compression at the very bottom. So the difference in pay between, say, an entry-level person in retail and the next level up, so maybe a retail assistant or a retail supervisor. And sometimes we worry that if you lift the wage floor, those gaps might become very small, and that might have a negative effect on perhaps progression rates, people's you know, incentive to move up. Do you really want to take on more responsibility if you're not going to get much uh, in return for it? Um, so over the long term, it's definitely true that we've seen more people bunching on the minimum wage. Um, but interestingly, that doesn't look like a problem that's been getting worse since 2016 when we had fast increases in the minimum wage. So this is one way of showing that. So this is in retail, the proportion of workers aged 25 and above who are earning at the wage floor, which I define as minimum wage plus five pence, and then two other bands as well. So you can see that in 2016, which is that jump there, there certainly was an increase in, in the bunching at the bottom, but it doesn't look like that problem has been getting worse in this recent phase of fast increases. And I, I take that as good news. And in terms of what that has done to people's ability to move off the minimum wage or their incentive to do so, again, that doesn't look like something that is worsening. So this, in the black line, is the proportion of uh, minimum wage workers who, in the following year, are earning at that following year's minimum wage plus 50p. So I'm sort of calling those people minimum wage escapers. They've had a sort of a significant pay rise. Um, and that number was falling over the, over the sort of history of the minimum wage. That number has come down. Um, but again, since 2016, we haven't seen any evidence here that people are sort of struggling to escape the minimum wage. That, that number has been actually trending up. And currently, that also looks to be the case in those low-paying sectors, which I'm showing there. Uh, and it's also, I'm not showing it here, but it's also the case of people who stay uh, in the same employer. So it's not that increasingly you have to you know, move to a different employer to get a, a minimum wage escaping pay rise. So those things don't look like to be like they're worsening since um, 2016. So yeah, some good news there. Uh, but obviously there's an ongoing watching brief for the LPC and others to uh, you know, keep an eye on all these other potential things that we worry about. So uh, one last point on low hourly pay, which is to note that Actually, in, in some parts of the economy, uh, low pay hasn't fallen very much at all. So there are some occupations where actually you're similarly likely to be low paid now as you were 25 years ago. So it takes a little bit of digesting this chart. But on the axis, um, on the y-axis, you've got uh, the proportion of people in low pay in the last few years by occupation. And on the x-axis, you've got that number 25 years ago. And 
to help us along, I've put some gaudy colors in here. So in green, these are occupations where the rate of low pay has fallen, and in red, it's where it's got worse. So you would expect most of these occupations to be in the green segment, i.e. low pay falling compared to 25 years ago. But what I thought was interesting is that in many occupations, actually, it hasn't changed very much at all. So quite a few of them are on that 45-degree line there. And it turns out that occupational, the sort of the changing occupational structure of the economy, so the occupations that we work in, actually accounts for quite a significant part of the overall fall in low pay, more than half, I think, in the, in the LFS data. So it's not necessarily that it's all coming from within occupation change. That doesn't mean that there hasn't been pay change in these occupations, just that the minimum wage hasn't quite pushed pay in those sectors above the low pay threshold. Clearly, you know, it would have had a very big impact on, on, on pay in those sectors. Okay, so that was, uh, yeah, you know, obviously a, a series of charts which I think have, have good news and show what happens when you have an, an ambitious minimum wage policy. I think the question we would like to ask, though, is what next? You know, we've got this really, uh, you know, this, this big success that we, that we can all be happy about, but, you know, what else is there? Uh, and there definitely is more. So there are three things we want to highlight here, and which we think should form part of a, a strategy for low-paid workers in the next 10 years. One is self-employment, one is hours, um, and one is insecurity. So all of those charts I just showed you actually only relate to employees. And that's unfortunately because we are best able to measure the pay of employees. So most of those headline low pay figures just completely miss the self-employed. Um, but we can measure the self-employed self pay, even if, even if there are sort of measurement questions. Uh, and what we find when we do so is that low pay is much higher. The incidence of low pay is much higher among the self-employed, and that's true for hourly pay and free weekly pay. So that's what I'm showing you on the left panel here. It's the proportion of employees and self-employed workers who find themselves in low hourly pay, and that's on that two-thirds of, of the median measure. And you can see that it's at least twice as high for the self-employed, and that has always been the case. But I think maybe what's slightly less well-known is that uh, as, as a result of it falling among employees, and as a result of the fact that self-employment has been growing uh, in the UK in the last 20 years, the self-employed constitute an increasing share of the low-paid workforce in the UK. It's now up to just below a third, and that's on that right-hand side panel there. Uh, that's all self-employed. If you only look at solo self-employed, so if you exclude business owners, that chart actually goes up quite a bit quicker. Um, so all, all the growth is coming from, from people who are, are solo self-employed. The only other point to make here is that there's obviously a lot of attention on the gig economy at the moment, and you know, rightly so, those, those workers are at the you know, forefront of debates around the regulation of employment. Um, but we did have a look at new data in the Understanding Society uh, survey, which suggests that the gig economy may be at around 550,000 workers. Now, you know, these, these numbers are very uncertain, and previous estimates have been higher. Um, but we can compare that to the number of all low-paid workers, which is about 1.6 million. So I think it's useful to place uh, the gig workforce in the context of, I think, potentially bigger issues of low pay. Not that I'm sort of understating the insecurity that gig workers um, face. So secondly, um, hours. So those charts related to low hourly pay, but clearly what matters for uh, living standards and disposable uh, income is your, uh, is your weekly pay, your monthly pay. And that's a function of not just the hourly rate of pay, but how many hours you're working. And we know that low paid workers are much more likely to uh, lack hours than higher than higher paid workers and this is on, on this chart a few measures which show that so on the left panel you've got workers in a low hourly rate of pay on the right panel you've got higher paid workers and there are a few different ways of, of, of measuring do these workers want to work more hours and the purple line sort of collects them all and says does, does this worker experience any of these issues uh, and you can see that hours insufficiency is something that affects low paid workers 
you know, much more significantly than it, than it does higher paid workers, probably, probably unsurprisingly. Um, but I think the scale of the difference is, is quite striking. Um, secondly, another type of insecurity is people experiencing hours and pay volatility. Now, we tend to think about zero hours contracts uh, when we think about pay volatility. And that's the blue line down at the bottom there. Sorry, again, I'm repeating the trick of low hourly pay on the left, not low hourly pay on the right hand side. Um, so we know that zero hours contracts have been, have been rising. Uh, and that's particularly true for the low paid. In the long term, though, part of that increase was in 2012 when there was this measurement issue. So I've also got a slightly broader measure here on the green line, which is people who say my hours vary week to week and I'm paid an hourly rate. So it's not like someone who's paid monthly salary whose hours vary, which is not going to have an impact on the pay. It's someone who's paid an hourly rate and therefore varying hours will, will, will feed through to their pay. Um, and you can see that that, again, is something that experienced much more um, by the low paid than, than other workers, and it also goes well beyond those on zero hour contracts. And again, the, the trend is quite striking here. So it looks like it's been improving for better paid workers, uh, but not at all for those on, on the lower rates of pay. So to conclude, and I should say this isn't a, a, a detailed policy paper, but we will be publishing uh, a detailed policy paper in the second phase of the Economy 2030 inquiry, but to sort of sketch out where sort of progress is needed and where a new strategy for low paid will should focus so first of all clearly uh, there's a question about what next for the minimum wage the current target runs out in 2024 so i think the government in the next couple of years will be deciding what the new remit will, will look like uh, i hope that it will involve further progress um, secondly on self-employment so this is much harder there's not a direct lever you can pull to you know increase the pay of self-employed workers but we think that there should be efforts to reduce incentives for for people to be self-employed over being a worker and that means equalizing treatment in the tax system uh, and it should be easier for those who are uh, falsely uh, defined as, as self-employed to, to gain worker status uh, and secondly we might want to consider expanding the minimum wage legislation we, lo we looked in the past at sort of a, a test for minimum wage rates for self-employed workers based on the piecework idea where you look at how much an average worker earns but you know, that definitely needs some more consideration secondly insecurity i think the main idea here is a right to a regular contract so if you're on an unstable contract but you're working regular hours we think you should have a contract that reflects your normal hours ireland introduced this in 2019 um, i don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't do so here and then finally on hours again these are i think harder questions than the you know than, than raising the wage floor but i think effort should focus on tackling barriers to increasing hours uh, incentives to increasing hours and improving the availability of more hours where I think the most interesting policy I've seen is in um, in the US where I think some jurisdictions have said that when a, a firm wants to expand it should first offer hours to uh, existing workers um, that was it thank you very much great very much night thank you very much indeed you win the prize for the first one-armed presentation uh, the Resolution Foundation, which is, uh, you know, it's always good to make uh, progress. Um, speaking of which, like, big picture, what we're saying is huge progress on hourly low pay. If you'd asked me 10 years ago if this could happen, I would have said it was completely impossible. But then again, we'd be wrong about everything else uh, in the last decade. So we should celebrate uh, that. That progress, though, is in stark contrast to the lack of progress in some other areas, um, self-employment, hours, and this wider issue about uh, security and dignity at work. And one thing I would add just on the end of that is we need to reflect, which is hourly low pay falling right, you know, very fast, minimum wage rising over 20 years, two decades, at the same time, job satisfaction amongst low paid workers falling. They're the only workers whose job satisfaction was falling over those two decades. So anyone that thought that was enough needs to go and ask those workers 
why their not job satisfaction isn't going up with their pay and that in the end should be a spur for us to look ahead to ask new questions about what uh, matters. Now, speaking of questions, lots of good questions coming in on Slido, so keep putting those in on hashtag low pay and hopefully for some great answers. Over to you, Aaron. Okay, thank you. Um, it's great to be here. Um, it is really uh, very satisfying in some ways to see how the uh, progression of low pay and has has occurred in UK. You know, I was here in 2019 uh, when I re released my report uh, looking at the idea of ambitious minimum wage policies, both here in UK uh, as well as in other parts of the world. And uh, that was uh, very eye-opening in many ways because UK has really led uh, in, uh, you know, when it comes to setting a ambitious minimum wage, in this case the national living wage, and really tackling the issue of, of, um, of low pay. So the fact that we have seen this very sharp decrease in the incidence of low pay down to 13% uh, is, is quite encouraging. And so I just want to reflect on a few things today. Uh, first, just kind of review some of the evidence on the impact of the national living wage since the release of my 2019 report. Um, and I want to talk a little bit as well about some of my, the, what's going on in the low-wage labor market, including bringing in some of the experiences in the United States, be it uh, when it comes to the issue of uh, the amount of labor market churn uh, quitting, we sometimes call the great resignation as workers are, are, are leaving low-wage low jobs for better opportunities, as well as the issue of um, unionization and rising rates of unionization in the United States in the, in the low-wage sector. Okay, so one of the things that I had suggested in my report in 2019 was for the low-pay commission to both have internal assessments as well as commissioned to uh, leading academics uh, for larger studies of looking at the impact of uh, the national living wage. And it's very encouraging to see that absolutely has happened. And, and again, I just want to congratulate both the Resolution Foundation, the Low Pay Commission uh, for just really uh, sh shining examples of evidence-based policymaking. Uh, and, and having that infrastructure. And, and so uh, the Low Pay Commission just really recently released its report looking at the impact of the national living wage, especially through uh, just, just up to the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and both internal as well as uh, commission research have been quite encouraging when it comes to the, uh, the impact of the national living wage and raising low bottom pay uh, and not really having had any uh, any really detectable adverse effect when it comes to job finding. And here I just want to take uh, a minute to talk about what I see as probably the best evidence that was uh, from this report, uh, that study that was done by the IFS, that developed really a new methodology to look at the overall impact on uh, low on, on amount of jobs from the national living wage by comparing how the bite of it varied in high versus low wage areas of, of the UK. And looking through the end of 2019, there was scant evidence of any, uh, any disemployment effect uh, from the national living wage, which was consistent with what prior research had found that I had summarized in my 2019 report. Uh, so that is quite encouraging. Um, since then, 
my uh, colleague uh, Attila Lindner at UCL and I also looked at about nearly two dozen United States cities that have increased the minimum wage, um, sometimes up to $15 an hour or higher. And again, we found that you know through the um, through the end of 2019, the impact of uh, of those policies, those ambitious uh, city minimum wage policies, were were quite uh, they were quite successful in raising raising bottom pay with with little evidence of job loss. There's there's some studies since then that have found a little more mixed impact of some of the state policies. But my sense is so far we're still. Uh, the elusive turning point where the minimum wage might have start to have more uh, significant job loss is still, uh, you know, so we're still searching for that. So I think so far we, I think the policy has been quite, quite successful. So um, let me then just talk a little bit about the broader context of low, low pay. So in the United States, of course, at the federal level, we haven't changed our national minimum wage for about almost 13 years, which is incredible and shocking. Um, at the same time, about you know, half, the, half the states are in the United States have uh, actually pursued much more ambitious minimum wage policies. So it's just a very heterogeneous uh, setting when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to pay in the US. Um, what has happened, which is fascinating, is in the US, for the first time in 40 years, we're seeing reduction in wage inequality. And that is only partly driven by, uh, by minimum wage policy. Uh, must, much of it is being driven by the fact that we have an incredibly tight labor market. Um, we can, you know, pe people may disagree about exactly why, but what is true and not um, controversial is that we have seen workers leaving low-wage jobs for better opportunities at rates we have really not seen since we've been collecting the data. And as a result, the bottom percentiles, for example, 10th and 20th percentile pay uh, has actually grown the fastest and the 80th and 90th percentile pay has grown the least. And so even after taking into account the very high levels of um, inflation rate, real wages uh, have actually, in the last two years, risen mostly at the bottom third of the pay distribution, which, you know, if you had asked me uh, a couple of years ago, imagine a world where pay is rising at the bottom and not at the top, I would have sort of said, well, like, I really can't. <laughs> but that is indeed what is happening. It's going to be quite interesting to see if this is a temporary phenomenon or is it something that actually more fundamentally changes the low, uh, you know, low wage uh, labor market in, in the US. Uh, there's also indication of this, what we call the great resignation, actually happening in other parts of, uh, uh, of the world. Um, there's increasing amounts of churn, for example, in France. And, uh, and, and so I think the experience of the pandemic, especially in the hospitality sector, uh, and uh, and who knows what else, has potentially uh, might have long-lasting impact in the way we think about uh, low-wage work, and as well as what we think about policies that needed uh, to make improvements. So I'll stop here. Great, that's a nice perky bit to stop on, Aaron. Thank you very much indeed.
Right, Kate, lots of plugs there for the low pay commission's work. Well done. That's one of the uh, commissions. Lots of plugs for you. Tell us. Uh, thanks. Um, I guess the main thing I want to get across is that I think um, the more ambitious national minimum wage policy is a good example of we have these kind of perennial labour market debates in the UK where workers and their representatives say, guess what, we could be a bit more ambitious for low-paid workers. Business, kind of sensible opinion, says, oh, no, that's a bit scary. Let's not do that. That's really hard. It's too risky. And they're like, you know, this is the one example we've got of that ambition actually saying, do you know what? That instinct was right. We could do that. And I think we need to apply that kind of instinct, that finding, to some other areas of policy. So that's the main thing I wanted to say, basically. Um, I was going to mention the Lay Pay Commission's report and really celebrate, you know, the news that um, Nye and Aaron have told us that we raised the minimum wage without um, job loss. And, you know, that really is worth celebrating. And I wanted to kind of remind us a bit of why that really matters, because low pay does limit people's lives. Um, just to give a couple of quotes from ASDOR's recent members survey um, at the beginning of this year, obviously very dominated by cost of living issues, but these are people who've been on low pay, they're retail workers for a long time. Families in that survey saying things like, um, we no longer have any spare money for family treats or to buy the children things they need. My partner works seven days a week when overtime is available, so the children are not seeing their dad we're still struggling to afford to live even after all of this. Things like, we've had to remove our kids from the clubs they do, as even this low cost was too much on our finances. And my child knows I'm broke. She keeps saying she'll sell her toys to help me. It breaks my heart. Now, that is about the cost of living rising now, but it is also about the enduring legacy of low pay, meaning that you don't have the money to put aside to help when those costs happen. And that's why this matters, I think. So we've still got an awful lot to do, even though we want to celebrate. So what are some of those lessons from the last period that I think we can draw on? I think the first one is that if businesses are forced to raise wages, they can, basically. You know, we keep being told, well, you know, we'll just wait for productivity to turn up and then we'll raise some wages. Actually, it turned out businesses could raise wages, particularly at the bottom end, if they were compelled to do so. You know, we have not seen that business disaster. We haven't seen a rising kind of business turnover at the lower end. We've seen a maybe a bit of profit squeeze, although we can't really measure it. That's what's going on in the kind of low pay commission report. And I think we need to think about the other tried and tested way of raising wages for everybody at the median too. We want a rising median too. And, you know, that would enable us to be more ambitious, certainly in cash terms, for the minimum wage. And that, of course, is collective bargaining. We are seeing innovations. We're seeing, you know, really strong pro-union laws attempting to be passed in the US and amazing organising going on. In New Zealand, we're seeing those fair pay agreements which set a minimum level of pay which is negotiated across sectors. And we are seeing a few kind of victories in the UK. You know, GMB's just got a recognition deal with Deliveroo, interestingly, dealing with those self-employed workers who Nye was talking about. And, you know, that is one of the most flexible ways we can actually think about pushing pay up, including for the self-employed. Um, the next thing I think we've learned is that pay and social security are complementary and not alternative um, methods of raising wages. One of the things that the Low Pay Commission report talks about is how household incomes have not risen to the same extent that pay has kind of driven up as earnings have. But that's absolutely because the policy was not intended to raise household incomes. It was brought in at a time, an explicitly political strategy, to raise wages and to cut social security. The intention was not to raise household incomes, and lo and behold, household incomes did not rise. 
And I think we really have to put to bed this kind of dangerous political fallacy that there are complement that there are rival strategies, one of which is you just raise pay, the other is, you know, oh, we're only interested in benefits. These are complements, particularly support with the extra costs of children, cannot solely be met through pay. And we have to see both of them rising together. And that's particularly important now when we're talking about the cost of living crisis. And I think that is something that the low pay, you know, the experience of the minimum wage over the last um, five, six, seven years, I'm going to get my timing wrong, has really kind of demonstrated once and for all. Um, last thing I wanted to say, and I think both Nye and Aaron touched on this, was of course it's not the only thing that matters. Hours security, job security really matters too. Um, the Lay Pay Commission, actually to do a bit more advertising for our work, actually put forward a very strong set of recommendations on this back in 2017. We said we need a right to a guaranteed hours contract, we need um, uh, reasonable notice for your shifts and we need payments when you're cancelled your shifts are cancelled so that you shift the risk of cancelling shifts you shift the risk of that insecurity back so it's more fairly shared between the employer and the employee we were going to have an employment bill in this country um, government promised that 20 times they've now cancelled that that would have been an opportunity to bring in that change we're still going to be looking for opportunities to do it there's another government review of um, the future of work you know yes, that's Matt. Matt Warman MP Matt Warman MP Keep an eye um, guys. Yeah, there have been 25 government consultations on work employment rights um, <laughs> since 2017. There is now another review. Um, I'll leave you to is, that, is that you moaning about having to reply to the consultations and not getting a bill? <laughs> it's, it's genuinely frustrating. We spend our time, we put our effort in in good faith. We ask workers, <laughs> we ask workers to spend their time telling us their experience of low-paid work, yeah. and you know, and in good faith because we think that policy is making is done in good faith so it you know it okay. is frustrating we'll continue to do that but I guess you know so you've got a really strong agenda basically you know yes higher rates of minimum wages yes collective bargaining decent social security and those rights to tackle insecure work and just to say you know if that sounds ambitious and kind of you champion as Torsten just said you know 10 years ago we didn't think we could have had a higher minimum wage so I think we can raise our level of ambition across the board right good everyone's finishing on perky things today <laughs> which is quite impressive given that there's pretty bad news out there uh, left right and center right we've got loads of food for thought um, from the panel and uh, questions from you all so keep those coming in I'm going to try to do justice to them I thought we would do try to do three things we've got 40 minutes people so that's like our to-do list so first of all let's just briefly touch on what on earth is going on in the labor market particularly is there something different going on in the US and the UK great resignation bottom top wise which I'm not sure we're going to get to a conclusive answer for we might say it's the data but anyway we a bit it's a bit on the right now but there is some good news as well then let's do the minimum wage and then let's do everything else all right that's the plan everyone so like just briefly on what's going on in the the labor market so i thought what one thing we might want to start on and i did show this at the beginning but we slightly moved on to other stuff quickly because we we're looking at the longer view but if you go back 18 months lots of us were worried that the a pandemic which was heavily sectorally concentrated on sectors with low paying workers that saw big rises in unemployment or inactivity via furlough schemes, particularly of low-paid workers, uh, would lead to a longer-term rise in unemployment amongst those workers, and that that could be the bad legacy from this crisis. People on both sides of the Atlantic doing thought patterns said that is the problem we should be worried about. Um, uh, everyone was wrong. <laughs> okay. Now, at one level, they were wrong because the level of gov government support, particularly in the US, but also here, was so much larger than anybody. Yeah. Well, the, those baseline projections were without the government support, 
We then threw hundreds of billions of pounds at government support uh, to make sure we didn't see those outcomes. And so maybe at one level, it's not surprising. But it is, you know, if you'd said at the beginning of the pandemic, we'll come out of this with, without higher unemployment amongst the low, or significantly higher unemployment amongst the low paid, we all thought that was impossible. Uh, and instead, people are spending in the US spending their time worrying about whether the low paid are now too empowered. Uh, and in the UK, they're kind of not quite there. But, you know, there's a bit of, you know, everyone's was a bit of like, well, how dare they? <laughs> how dare they ask for a pay rise? Yeah, they need to hide that. There's a bit of that. Anyway, so Aaron, what the hell's going on? I think really you touched on an important aspect, which is that I think we were absolutely really worried that this. Um, very sectorally uh, asymmetric pandemic could really have scarring effects. Yeah. Uh, and I think in part because of those worries, we uh, have collectively uh, done a lot more than I thought, you know, I, I, I would fear that we would have done. So I think it's okay to congratulate ourselves for in at least, you know, doing, doing that. Um, in different ways in the United States, we use the unemployment insurance system. Uh, here you use the furlough system, but at the end of the day, providing um, some income support during that, especially the, in, in 2020 and 2021, uh, proved to be quite important. So- Can I ask you a really unfair question? Yeah. So in the US, so I was, over, I was over with you guys a few weeks back, so everyone is like, oh my God, look at this tight. There's people who like don't like how tight it's got, who think the labor market's too tight and the other's rest. But let's leave all of the macro discussion, okay? Because yeah. we're going to be here forever. There and everyone will start screaming, right? So let's forget all of that and just focus on within the labor market what's going on. In the US, everyone is looking at these this pay data and these quit rates and saying there's something totally transformational going on at the bottom end of the labor market. Right, low people that employ low paid workers are having to think seriously about their business models, etc. That that isn't really in the UK data either. It's not in the pay data. It's not really in the quits data. If you think this is just a catch up from nobody quitting any jobs during the pandemic, it, you know, this, it's not saying it hasn't come up, but it's not doing what it's doing in the US. And as we say, insofar as we can tell, with lots of uncertainty, the highest earners, like you definitely want to be working in finance and getting bonuses right now in the UK. That's like the, anyone not doing that, you made a terrible choice, it's probably too late now. Uh, anyway, so what, why are they different? Should we have shaken out the labour market? And basically, so what was different? Low earners lost their jobs in the States, whereas here they got furloughed. I mean, I think the jury is out about exactly what are That's the... That's very bold of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, so I think part of it, um, I, I do think that it's an interesting observation that in the U.S. the, the support was not through uh, their keeping people at their existing jobs, but rather uh, by giving uh, unemployment benefits. And it is also true that in way we designed it, the, the unemployment benefits were actually ended up paying more than sometimes 100% of pay at the bottom, sometimes substantially more for at least parts of 2020 and 2021. Is it possible that changed the reservation wage in terms of, or you know, so that aspired wages of, of, of workers? It's possible uh, that played some role. It's also the case that, you know, people disagree about whether this is good or bad, that we provided income support and just general stimulus payments that led to very sharp uh, you know, increase in hiring, uh, and that uh, was met with only partial, um, you know, labor supply, yeah. and so creating this very tight labor market. And and again, as I said, this was, uh, you know, this, this has sort of various 
components to it. One is sort of exit in terms of people leaving their jobs when they're low paid. And the other is voice. And that's basically you know, the examples of unionization happening in major companies like um, Starbucks or Amazon, which Again, if you had asked me in 2019 when I was here, imagine in a couple of years major American companies are seeing unionization. I would have said, well, it's, it's a bit hard to see. I haven't seen anything, any reason to believe. But you know, a, one of the things about unionization is probably these spurts happen almost always uh, in uh, unexpected and unanticipated times. And so, um, but you know, at a, at a very basic level, um, these major world-changing <laughs> pandemics uh, oftentimes have unexpected impacts. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I think it's it'll be interesting to see to what extent in the U.S., uh, which has really the evolution of low pay and the structure of the low-wage labor market has been very discouraging in many ways in the U.S., uh, we're seeing some encouraging changes and it'll be important to keep an eye on to see if these are more persistent. Uh, which I, I, I certainly hope that they are. Okay. I think we're all going to have to stop saying, I didn't see any of this coming, or I was completely wrong, because at some point people are going to switch off. Because it's like, <laughs> these guys don't have anything. It's been wrong everything for the last 10 years. I've right, gone briefly, Kate, because I, I want a minimum wages up. One observation on the US and the UK. Yeah. The US has, you know, has got a political leader who is explicitly saying, I want unionisation. I want to tackle inequality. Now, I'm not no, saying Biden, that the, the intention... I'm not saying that... You know, the intention is everything. Obviously, yeah. his power is limited. Yeah. But there is something about the political intentions are explicitly to achieve what they're doing. The political intentions here are not to do that. Do you think you're going to get that in the next 10 years? <laughs> oh, come on. You're being really perfect. <laughs> you just say yes anyway. It's fine. Right, OK. We uh, can if we fight for it. OK, very good. There you go. There you go. The, um, we haven't basically got... Well, we might... Like, like Joe Biden is unusual in that basically... He, ha he is basically... I mean... The guy's old, and that's not a bad thing, right? But there, but he is from his. He's, he's got a nostalgia about his view of unions is rooted in, like, an old view of trade unions and a nostalgia for that. Let me re-answer that stories. question. Yeah. The Labour Party are committed to introducing fair pay agreements across the economy. There you go. Okay, by the way, you're very nice. <laughs> we could have style. it. There's a policy in place. All right, very it's good. Committed to. We need to deliver it. Very. Uh, Good. Right. I want to. I want to try to pivot from that question about what on earth is going on into this into the minimum wage, uh, and ask a really unfair question, which is like, why has it been fine, right? Okay. Now, I don't. I don't mean like just show us it has been fine. Let's just take as a given. The research basically says it hasn't had most of the bad side effects people predicted. So the question is why both in terms of the economics of what's going on, but also mechanistically in firms, yeah, and at the firm level, what is going on. So here's a way to think about this, which is um, it, for lots of people that wanted higher minimum wages, so I'll pick like Martin Sambu, okay, the FT guy for this, right? So his story is, look, people, it's partly what you were saying, it is, stop waiting for productivity growth to turn up, whack up wages at the bottom, uh, make it a bit scandy, this will force firms to raise productivity because they have to respond to wage pressure, right? That's the line. I'm totally kind of shortening his argument, but that is basically his argument. Okay. Now, I was uh, the evidence on the national living wage isn't very strong that that is why this is okay, right? It's not showing that. What so when you survey firms, and we've had this experience, we actually surveyed firms 
around 2016 on what they were going to do. They, they were looking at this sharp wage rise and we said, what are you going to do? And they all said, we're definitely going to raise productivity. Uh, that's what firms always say when you survey them about anything. Okay? They definitely, they don't even know what productivity means, but they're always going to increase it if you survey them. Right? And then policymakers say, look, it's going to be fine. They're going to raise productivity. Right? The evidence shows they did not raise productivity. By the way, the evidence always shows that British firms don't raise productivity because British firms have rubbish productivity. Okay? So they didn't raise productivity. Um, and, and that might have made you worried because if your route to not getting an employment effect was there was going to be more free money for everybody, okay, you haven't got that. So the question is, what else? Where was the margin of adjustment if it wasn't on productivity? And I want to give us a few things to think about. Um, and also, the connection back to what we were just discussing is, if any sectors have seen a productivity shock from this crisis, it's got to be low-earning sectors. They're the ones that had, like, tables spread out more, okay? Or they couldn't process as many customers, or they had to buy extra PPE, or they're the ones with all the squirty hand sanitizers, right? It wasn't offices like us. Okay, our costs didn't really go up at all. In fact, I saved money. Fewer events. I love you, but you're all quite expensive. Uh, so the people that who's, who had a productivity shock was low-earning firms, but the labour market for low-earners is booming, right? So if productivity was the barrier to employment, versus wage trade-offs for the low-paid, it ain't showing up in either this crisis or the national living wage data. So what is going on? And there's two, here's two hypotheses. One is power matters. This is all about rent sharing, right? And all we're doing is redistributing some of the rent from profits to wages amongst the low-paid. Or, or it's not just about the worker versus firm power. It's about market power on the product side, and firms are just raising prices. And in the end, you're just making a choice about, there is a trade-off here, but the choice is, consumers' prices are up. It's not about for workers losing their jobs. So without being totally jury on the fence, what is going on? Yeah, so I think, you know, there is some evidence uh, internationally that um, there's some productivity impact of, of minimum wage. So is it within firm or is it between it's firms? Exactly. So I think most, in my assessment, there's some evidence of within firm, uh, but there's also evidence that you shift more production towards higher productivity firms. And I think the strongest evidence for this comes from Germany. Um, but uh, in the in the UK, I think the, it's safe to say that there hasn't been a ma major uh, observable in, increase in productivity as sort of the major offset. Instead, I think the uh, I think that other two channels have been much more relevant. One, some uh, impact on on profits, and then the other is that yes, we are choosing to uh, have higher wages at the bottom, um, which may be partly mean some higher prices that's shared more broadly, especially including by consumers in the, at the middle and uh, higher. Um, in the income distribution for the fact that bottom wages are higher. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's something that there's a lot of evidence that this is an important margin. Uh, it's also something that most people uh, seem to be fine with, and it's an it's a, it's a issue of fairness. So I think those, those two uh, mechanisms in terms of the incidents being both on profits as well as consumers more broadly, uh, I think are probably the more relevant margins. Very good. Now, Night one for you. It was a question for you, and then we're going to ask the question as a poll for everybody. So get onto Slido, hashtag low pay. So uh, coming up on the screen, hopefully now, which is basically where are we going next on the minimum wage? So we talked about new frontiers beyond the minimum wage, but we, we, we're out of minimum wage targets by 2024. It will have been, it probably, fingers crossed, will have been achieved. So tell us a bit about what will have been achieved by 2024. 
where we go next. And this question is also coming with an angle to it, which is it shouldn't be another politically <laughs> set uh, target. How technocrat are you feeling? Yeah, I, w I wonder if, if, if we did remove the political targets, if the sort of the, the uh, spirit of ambition would have been so baked into the obviously that they'll sort of carry on anyway. I don't, I don't know. Um, well, by 2024, we'll have a minimum wage in theory at yeah, two thirds of, of the median, which would be a big success. It will be among the highest national minimum wages in the world. I think. Who, who will still be higher? I think possibly New Zealand, possibly South Korea. Mm. Um, okay but we'll be ahead of France. Ahead of France? Mm, That's going to so. go down. So when? That is going to go down like a lead balloon. I think so. <laughs> um, so that'd be good. And, we, and we've also lowered the age uh, threshold for um, the adult rate. It used to be 25 when it was bought in 2016. Now it's 23. And in theory, it'll be 21. Someone actually was asking a question about that as well, which is, are young people benefiting enough? So your answer is, legally, they're going to benefit in future. And in practice, are they benefiting now? Are people paying them the adult rate anyway? The majority, I think, I'm pretty sure the majority of young people aren't paid at the youth rates, they're paid at the adult rates, yeah. or, or some obviously in between as well. But okay. yeah, when you speak to businesses, many of them say, I can't be bought. I haven't got the time to worry about the youth rates. You know, it's, it's more, more hassle than it's worth to try and figure out how old everyone is and pay, and pay them lower. So then, they're not actually that widely used. It is socially awkward to ask people's ages. Uh, right, why don't you talk people through this poll now, then, which is basically saying what should happen next? If we can bring this up, I don't know. Oh, the IT did work. Amazing. Right, come on then. Everyone vote on this. Now I tell them what this actually means. Uh, read it first, but then tell them. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> National liberal wage is due to rise two-thirds. After what, what should policymakers do after that? So number one, ramp up the ambition again. So does that mean that we have a new uh, bite-based target? So perhaps 70% of, of median hourly pay, I don't know. Secondly, leave it there. This is about right. Or thirdly, water it down. We've gone too far. Let's, let's back off. Um, these are all assuming right, that we continue setting the minimum wage relative to average earnings. So it's all like that first chart and I showed about where the bike should be heading. Should it stay flat? Should it go back down? Should it go up? No, what is your view? Uh, shock, shock horror, I, yes. I, I can't see any reason why, if, if the picture continues to be that we haven't had negative effects on employment, if we're having these effects on profits and to some extent prices, I, yeah, I can't think why you wouldn't. I think the, the more interesting question is, what, what is the bit of evidence that will cause us to stop? You know, how much of an effect on prices or how much of an effect on yeah. profits? Or even on, you know, or even on you know, hours, you might be willing to accept some amount of hours effect if it's having you know, a beneficial enough impact on pay. So I think those are the more interesting questions. But yeah, I, I can't see why we wouldn't, as a first okay. step, set ourselves a new target. Okay. To be tough on that, then, while everyone is voting, Kate, you can take this one, which is there's a cost of living crisis going on, right? but we've just set a higher minimum wage is basically more than we, we focused on the trade-off versus employment in lots of our work, but actually the trade-off maybe versus prices. How are we going to decide when there's a cost of living crisis? How are we going to decide when that trade-offs, you know, higher wage for one person is higher prices for somebody else? Well, What's the, the low-pay commission um, evidence is that the proportion of prices that are put up, it's a minimal effect on prices, and the goods that are made by, you know, delivered by low-paid workers are a tiny point of the price basket, so it's going to be an awful long way before we get anywhere near that trade-off whatsoever. There's you not know, enough minimum wage workers in the There's not the enough minimum base. wage workers in the cost base to sense. deliver that. Oh, okay. you know, you know some, some hospitality businesses with low margins 
they'll be putting up prices. Yeah, but the cost of living crisis right now is not being driven by the hospitality sector, is it? Uh, it is for the yuppies, but yeah, no, that's not that's <laughs> there you not, go. That's that's your not answer the big problem stuff. going on, though, no, I but, agree. But that, that's the point that Aaron made much more eloquently than I'm able to, which is the distribution of those costs is being moved from low-paid workers to high-paid consumers. Yeah. Personally, I think that's a good thing. Okay. Just to endorse what Kate said, we're, we're obviously considering this. So one of the things we're trying to force ourselves to do with this big project with LSE um, on the Economy 2013 inquiry is to be like, okay, what are the actual trade-off? What are the big picture trade-offs and choices, okay? And one of the ways we think about this is, so minimum wages mainly, I'm simplifying here, Aaron's probably going to shout at me, but like mainly are affecting the non-tradable sectors, okay? They're mainly people servicing UK consumers. Do, you, can't, you can't sell haircuts abroad unless you're like really flash and you're going to fly around doing haircuts or people are going to fly to you. But generally, it's not an export business, right? Okay? The, um, uh, and the same is true of hospitality, retail and all the rest, yeah? These are, these are non-tradable sectors. They don't have the same level of competitive pressure setting wages on prices internationally, yeah? So you actually have more choice domestically about what level you want wages and non-tradable prices to be. Right. And one thing we've done is look across the world, is there any relationship between the relative price of non-tradables in an economy and inequality? And the answer is countries with lower inequality have higher non-tradable prices. Yeah. And so you do need to make a choice to a degree about what kind of economy you want to be. And it will then restructure your economy. You probably will have a smaller hospitality sector if you have high wage costs, particularly if you're going beyond the minimum wage. Or Martin would say a more productive hospitality sector. Yeah, but it'll probably be smaller. They, um, you'll definitely have fewer domestic s staff. You know, there's a reason why the US has tons of like low-paid workers doing things that don't exist in Norway and Sweden, basically, where you don't have that kind of... So there are basically choice trade-offs to be had, and we want to... I think that is the kind of thing we need to big picture. Uh, answer. Right, let's um, take the results from the poll. Howard Perkey's everyone. Did Nye persuade you, or are you all a bunch of scared technocrats? The, um, uh, obviously, there's an election in 2024, so that's basically what this comes down to. What should be in those manifestos? All right, look, you're all a bunch of mad lefties. Very good. Okay. <laughs> the um, uh, evidence-based policymakers well, have discussed people, for the last hour. Yeah, all right, all right. We're just trying to liven this up a bit. We can't all build. So that this also does basically reflect where the balance of evidence-based policy thinking has gone over the course of the last 15 years. Nervous, nervous. Let's have a go. Oh, look, so far. You know, so far all good, let's just keep going until something bad happens. In your report, you did touch on, and we actually discussed this at a previous event, what, like, is the danger you fall off a cliff or is the danger you roll over a hill when it comes to going right. too far on the minimum wage? Yeah, I mean, I think most likely it's about, uh, you know, there's, there's not this imaginary cliff that you suddenly, you know, step over, so it's more likely it's that you start to see some uh, impacts and then uh, when you do and it's a good time to decide what what are those risks and trade-offs that uh, we would like to live with be it in terms of employment or being in prices and so forth um, so uh, I mean I, I will say that you know the other thing to think about is in terms of um, in terms of a minimum wage setting is not just at the very bottom but also potentially a broader set of sectoral pay standards and here for example the evidence from uh, or the experience in Australia is quite important and interesting uh, there's 108 different uh, you know sectoral based uh, pay uh, minimums uh, and that's very effective at not just raising those at the very pay at the bottom but also towards the middle of the of the distribution yep. so these are I think they're 
variety of tools uh, that you know what we may want to think about, uh, and not simply one policy. What, what's your favorite extra tool that the UK should? Because generally, you're like obviously from a UK's perspective, you're like it's quite nice watching this minimum wage go up really fast. If only the federal government was doing having a go. What's the one thing that you, is on your list? What's so, the experimentation I, you'd like us to do next? Well, I think, as I, as I just said, I think the idea of you know, sectoral standards is something that I think we should uh, you know, consider. Uh, certainly in the US uh, context and uh, at the state level, we're starting to see some um, possible experimentation, like in California, in, in setting uh, sectoral pay standards. Very good. Right. We're now going to move slightly off the minimum wage into other stuff there, although lots of it comes back to the similar overlapping issues. So let's do self-employment first. So Naya, a question for you, which is basically what do you actually want? Uh, I mean, not in life, but on the self-employed, if we can bring it up. The, um, uh, so we basically, like, we're to slightly paraphrase our position, um, we've got a massive problem amongst people who are self-employed people not earning very much money at all. Okay, the, and that isn't as much about the gig economy as the kind of press would have you believe. It's about wider issues to do with uh, self-employment. Uh, it's not that the risk has been going up, but the number of self-employed has been going up in brackets until the last year because something weird is going on with higher earning self-employed people dropping out of the labour market uh, entirely. But let's park that. The long-term trend is self-employment going up. It's uh, low pay, low people, a good chunk of those people earning very large, small amounts of money. Um, uh, what are we going to do about it now? And aren't they already perky anyway? Why do you care? Um, that's a I mean, that is a really interesting challenge. Self-employed people are, are generally happy. I mean, that, that yeah, that is, I think that is a good point. But in terms of what, you know, if, if you separately care about pay and are not just sort of looking at well-being measures, um, I so the the the, the incentivising self-employment question comes down mainly to uh, national insurance. So self-employed people don't pay employer nicks or. Which, which class is it? I always forget the classes. Let's just talk people with that a little bit. So like, small gap on employees' national insurance. Yeah. Massive whopping gap on employers' national, i.e. none, for the self-employed. Huge incentive for firms to employ people as self-employed workers, not as employees. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a widely known problem, and I think the Chancellor himself has said a few times in the past that he's keen to address this, but... Hasn't. He's not going to address but it. Hasn't. He is not going to do that. It's always, I'm keen to do many things in life. That one's not on the list. It's always talked about there is for the self-employed people themselves. And as you were just saying, the gap there is 2%. The gap for between if you are an engager, as they sometimes call them, deciding whether to take someone on on a contract and self-employed or as an employee is 13.8% on national you're insurance. You're always so nice and also <laughs> Loads of these lawyers are absolutely creaming in and benefiting. Absolutely. It's not, so it isn't just and you don't pay sick pay. It's, it, you don't pay the minimum wage. You, you don't, don't pay sick pay. pay you yeah. don't pay holiday okay. pay. Those are the incentives we should be talking about. It's not for the self-employed people themselves who have very little choice about where. For the low paid ones. For the low paid ones who are exactly who we're All talking we about, about yeah. don't have much choice about. Yeah. I'd like to work for Hermes as an employee, please. Yeah, that's definitely true. The, the high earners are perfectly happy. And by the way, you lot want to work, ask a question. We discussed this, uh, but or I can keep taking them from things. Why don't we move on to um, hours? So let me get this one. Where's it gone? There's a great question, which is basically saying, you you guys are saying there might be not enough hours going on at the low paid end. We should have we should have report out in a few weeks, subject to finishing it, which is basically digging into some of what's going on in different kinds of ways of thinking about. Uh, earnings inequality, right? And one of the things that comes out of it very clearly is we're showing you all these lines coming down, yeah? Low pay, low pay falling, which is about the gap between the lowest paid and the middle, right? But that's only one way of thinking about earnings inequality. We also care about 
weekly earnings inequality, which is what Nye has been arguing you should focus on by looking at hours. And then there's household earnings inequality, which is about who keeps hooking up with who, concentrations of worklessness among some households, uh, concentrations of people working long hours on high salaries amongst that some of this is sourced mating debate. Yeah, all of these things are doing a lot for determining why our inequality, which looks flat, is flat, because they're actually moving in very different um, directions. So why do we care about this hours thing, given that loads of other people would like us just to be four-day week? Is TUC in favour of the four-day week at the moment? Very good. Okay, so TUC, no. Given that you know wonderful people like Kate are in favour of a four-day week, why are you sickos trying to increase hours? I don't want everyone to increase their hours, and I don't even want all low-paid workers to increase their hours. I want the low-paid workers that want to work more hours to be able to do so. That's, very, that's the most liberal thing you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is an opportunity. Yeah, well, we're not going to actually legislate for it. That would be a bit weird. No, but I do, I do think, I do think like, the, the most interventionist version of it that I've come across is, are these issues, examples in, in America where in some sectors, some local areas have said to a firm, uh, if you're expanding, offer hours to, to your workforce first. And I think that's interesting because that relates to sort of the business model in some of those sectors where they want to have a pool of workers on sort of low to middle hours that they can increase. You know, that, that's a sort of a lower cost. I think, I think that, you know, the, the idea is that that saves them money. So I think that's quite an interesting idea and I've not really heard it discussed over here. Um, but yes, you wouldn't go to a business and say, you must offer all, you know, companies, uh, all, all your staff a minimum of hours. I don't think you would do that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and, and nor would you mandate that people have to increase their hours. But that's, yeah. that's very reassuring, if you know. The Irish example does give you banded hours, basically. So it says that you do actually have to offer people hours. You have to define what their working hours, basically. So if you're regularly offering them 12 hours a week, for example, you have to say you, ha you will be paid for 12 hours a week. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to ask Aaron whether the kind of tight labour market in the US is having an impact on sort of hiring practices as well as on pay. Aaron, is the hiring market in the US? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, what's really interesting is also that uh, even, so in 2019, right before the pandemic, which is also a pretty tight labor market, you still had people, for example, at the largest employer, Walmart, saying they didn't have enough hours. And so, um, so I think we are seeing changes in a uh, variety of aspects of hiring. Uh, be it in terms of hours, in terms of how much volatility of hours there is, uh, as well as um, uh, qualifications for, uh, for, for who gets those jobs. All of those are changing because employers actually have to figure out, like, well, if you want to expand, you need to make the jobs more attractive. And yep. so, and that means, besides, of course, pay, but also other aspects of jobs and other amenities. Can I, here's a really unfair question. The, um, so, so if you look at what's happening, um, the gender thing's quite complicated, so let's just talk about men for a second. No, I'm gonna come on to women. But like, if we look at what's happening to the hours worked across the earnings distribution for low, pay, low hourly paid men, higher hourly paid men, then we've got this shift over time where, and it's now it's happened to women as well to a degree, but we've got a fall in the hours worked by low earning men and over longer term rise, I think it's now done for, for hiring. So we've basically got a concentration of the hours of work towards the upper uh, part of the income, uh, earnings and the income distribution, which is pushing up on earnings inequality even while this, what we're talking about, is going on. Why is that happening? What is that happening in the US as well, where you've got those who have got, have got maybe lower qualifications and lower earning levels doing shorter hours, where in the olden days, by which I mean like 100 years ago, people working the longest hours in the economy were lower earning men because they were having to earn, work 70, 80 hours a week just to reach um, subsistence levels of 
Is, is it? So I'll give you some of the pop answers that are out there. I don't know the answer to this, by the way, so that's what I'm asking you. Like, so uh, people that write magazine articles say it's because computer games are really good these days. In fact, there's an academic article showing that like people retire. People retired earlier in the US when TV turned up, right? Because leisure suddenly got really cheap and really good, whereas before it involved staring at a wall in your like farmhouse. Okay, so they didn't retire because it was so rubbish, right? I'm slightly joking. There's some really good academic work. So computer games have got really good. I'm told. I've never seen one, but I'm told they're really good. Is it that? Is it that um, as the slow death of the patriarchy takes place, uh, the effect of that is felt acutely in amongst lower qualified men who without that protection, I mean, obviously it's very slow, so like a millennia still to go and all that, but uh, that you're basically seeing a shift of lower qualified men into previously female dominated professions, retail, hospitality, some bits of care, where short hours are the norm and you get like a reverse thing. Is it firms keeping short hour contracts because it's a way of controlling workers basically and that you don't have to have you don't have to bother having good performance management because you just cut their hours to hell if they don't stick to it and because you want that control mechanism you don't then increase hours when you've got them you just hire someone else because you can control that is it tax systems which incentivize it our national insurance system definitely incentivizes short hour working because you don't anyway there's four reasons ranging from the pop to the technocratic tax what do you reckon what's going on yeah, I mean, I think broadly speaking, we can think of it as, uh, is it labor supply related things or is it more labor demand or, you know, in terms of job structuring? And I, I think it's almost certainly labor supply is not the main driver. It's not people. You're not in the computer games. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, sort of a joke, uh, but yeah, it's a, but besides a joke, I think in more seriousness, I think, no, I don't think that's, that's going on. Uh, so I think what is going on is that these jobs, uh, low-wage jobs, are increasingly, yes, in, for example, uh, sectors and employers who are choosing to have uh, shorter hours and part-time jobs, which sometimes means that uh, to actually get more hours, you need to sometimes hold multiple jobs, for example, in the U.S., which is, that means it's that much harder. You're looking not just for one job, but two jobs and balancing the schedules. And uh, so that's, uh, so I think the question is, is you know, why I think part of it is uh, the having more control over, over, over the, um, you know, I think employers wanting to have uh, more control in that sense, uh, as well as some aspects of tax. So one of the things in the U.S., for example, is that, you know, if you are providing full benefits to full-time workers, and then for part-time workers, you do you're not providing any health benefits and other other benefits, uh, and so that's that's there are some tax reasons for that, and then there's you know other sort of structuring of pay in, in terms of different uh, tiers of workers. So, uh, and then what happens is that when when you actually have to compete harder to get workers, then you start offering them things workers like, including having more full-time work. What do you reckon, Kate? Have you seen these computer games? <laughs> I think um, there's something about the kind of changing st business structures as well, isn't there? So the kind of trend towards outsourcing as well as more flexible labour means you have got less kind of within firm comparison. So you've got um, what would be a good example? Yeah, okay. A kind of business services firm. You've got some high-paid executives. They're yeah, the, your long uh, working men. Then you've outsourced your cleaning. You've outsourced everything else basically that you can kind of flexibilize in order yeah. to reduce the costs and so we know that kind of within firm inequality and in pay has increased but I think one of the drivers has also been those kind of changes in business structure and that's also obviously like you know really boringly kind of shift from manufacturing to services has been accompanied by some of those changes yep. in, in business structure but I think that's part of the trend and then the kind of policy factors that enable that so 
you know, one of the reasons to push people in. It's like, oh yeah, it is much cheaper to have everyone on a shorter hour contract, not only because I only have to pay them short hours and I only have to pay them, you know, when they're around, but as Aaron said, in the UK, you know, you don't pay them sick pay, you don't pay them holiday pay if they're earning below the national insurance threshold. So the structure of our system, which was not designed for that, has enabled it and nobody's pushed back against it. Why do we think, so you know everyone, you raised this issue about multiple jobs. So we had a look at this, I can't remember how long ago, maybe two years. Like the number of people doing more than one job, I know everyone says it's becoming ever more common, but it's basically nonsense. It's basically been falling consistently since like forever, at least since the 90s, I think the chart we did. So it's basically, there's fewer people than we've seen in like a generation doing multiple jobs in the UK. What, why is that, what, how is that happening alongside an increase in people not getting the hours they want? That's why I was trying to ponder through. That's real fair because I don't know the answer either. I don't know the answer, but if you are, for example, a zero hours care worker, it's very difficult to take another job because you don't know when your existing shifts are going to be. So trying to schedule my other job in between my other insecure job is not exactly... That that's not, you know, the answer to, I haven't got enough hours in this job and I don't know when they're going to be, can't be, I'll get another job when I also don't know where the other hours are going to be. Okay, that makes total sense. Right, now let's move on to the, I want to move on to this wider insecurity question and then we're going to come back to what on earth we do about all of this. Where Sam has got a good question because uh, we're all about trade-offs here. Okay, you, we're saying amongst the low paid that is an issue at least to do with, with job satisfaction falling and to do with job insecurity. Job insecurity in the losing the job sense has come down or has at least come down with the cycle. It's not, it's not got worse anyway. But job insecurity in other ways hasn't come down for low earners in the way it has for higher <coughs> earners in general. Are we sure other bad things aren't happening to terms and conditions to basically help firms cope with the higher minimum wage? So it's, good, it's a good question. Uh, we, can't, we can't prove that it's not happening. And it has, I think, happened in social care. I think, I think LSE found that uh, raising the wage floor did lead to greater use of zero-hour contracts. So there's not no link and you know, that it does make sense if a firm's facing higher costs, you expect them to, to respond. Social care is obviously a bit different. You know, there are constraint, you know, really hard constraints on, on raising prices, so that's why you'll get different responses there than you might elsewhere in the, in the economy. The broad, the broad picture, though, is uh, I don't think these issues of insecurity are necessarily getting worse. You know, they, they go up and down, they've definitely got a lot worse uh, in, in, in periods, but I don't think there's a picture where over the last 20 years minimum wage went up, insecurity got worse. I just think it's always been a lot worse for low-paid workers. And there are certain types of insecurity that have risen, so zero contracts and gig work. But if you look, if you look at it slightly more broadly, I, I think it's less easy to draw um, a link. That, but that doesn't mean that you know businesses aren't changing the way... Overtime pay is definitely getting cut partly to cope with the minimum wage. Uh, That's not what the evidence shows. It oh, shows it's being cut across the board and not more for minimum wage workers. Everyone's just slashing. Every, overtime pay. I, I, yeah. I think your own research shows that that, ever, that overtime pay has premiums have fallen at every point in the. Well, so re- retail firms just say they're doing it for that reason, but actually, yeah. Uh, no, no, that, that is right. I didn't, it's not actually in this report, but I did did look at that chart, and yeah, the the use of overtime and the and the and the bonus of overtime is both falling, and it's not just for low paid workers. It's all. Okay. Well, there's not. It's anecdote. anecdote. Very good. They can't trust these retail uh, <laughs> companies. Right. Uh, to wrap us up, uh, one more poll, and then the, the last word to the panel on what their answer to this poll is. If I can make this thing work. Right. Here we go. Basically, what are we going to do next, people? Okay. Um, so, what's the most important thing for improving the lot of low-paid workers in the 2020s? Selfishly, you know, we're about to go and do a load of policy work on which of these is the most important, uh, and how you might do them. So, is it? deal with this underemployment problem, in brackets, obviously, with Nye's liberal approach, which is more hours for those that want them, not for everybody. The uh, reduced self-employment, 
uh, which has increased hugely in the UK compared to other countries. It's not as everyone's seen this happening. We're the winners over the last 20 years. Uh, is it new rights at work? Is it better enforcement? We haven't really touched on this in today's discussion, but is it just better enforcement of existing rights? We have in previous papers looked at enforcement of the minimum wage, where the challenge has got bigger as the minimum wage bite has risen. Uh, or is it that we need to stop putting up non-wage costs for firms because that is pushing down on wages? So overall compensation of the economy is X. If you increase national employers' national insurance or you increase pension costs, it pushes down on workers' take-home pay. Do we need to stop doing that? Right, let's go through the panel. They can give us our answers, and then we'll get the public's answer at the end. So let's go across the panel. Knight, which one do you want first? And don't say I want all of these because life's about trade-offs. <laughs> well, it is useful to, to, to note that hopefully some of these will end up in an employment bill at some at some point. So they sort of do go together. You're uh, such an optimist, I. Uh, have, you, have you been through the last five minutes? I'm just yeah. Okay, right. uh, and, it's, and the other thing to say is that point three, it, it, you can't really separate it from point four, you know, if, 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 if we're not enforcing it. It's, oh, all right, cool, we're not here to like... But, that's the premise of the question. It's, this isn't a philosophy seminar. Which one do you want? I probably controversially might go for enforcement, Thanks. just because I think the fact that we've got a few okay. hundred thousand people paid less than minimum wages... There we go. All right. Well Come on, Kate. Uh, stronger rights in, at work in the form of sexual standards to, for collective Ooh, bargaining. That's very good. She, she, not only did she answer the question, but you've got a specific idea. Sexual <laughs> bargaining. What do you want, Aaron? You know, I think we need multiple things. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> Honestly, look, come but, on, life's too uh, short. <laughs> like, uh, there's I, two minutes left. I do. Uh, I, I, I would second with Kate. You're with Kate. Yeah. Okay, so you guys want more rights. Now I would like some actual enforcement of the existing rights. The, um, I'm slightly surprised than of you. So I'm a, I'm a bit more anxious than some of you are about what is going on in the self-employed space, but maybe that's just because I'm not enough of a hippie and I should look at the well-being data and decide, you know, if people want to have very, very, very low earnings, uh, it doesn't matter. That's not my natural starting point, but, you know, we all have to live and learn. Right, let's briefly bring out the results of what you all thought, because, you know, this is a democracy, I'm told. Oh, there I you go. Yeah. Clear win. I mean, I'm not going to say... No, I'm not saying you've been defeated but you've been trounced uh, okay clear win for more uh, rights that's actually this I think the call for more regulation of the labor market is probably that's the one that best fits with the like direction of travel actually in the last 20 years policymakers tend to favor that we do love a bit of uh, national legislating uh, in the UK right let's uh, drop that and say um, thank you very much indeed to our panel I've definitely learned a lot from all of you so thank you very much for your time today the, um, and thank you all for uh, coming and for asking lots of questions. I hope everyone has taken one thing away, which is you've got a long to-do list, people. You've got to sort out energy bills right now, and then you've got a decade to sort out all these new frontiers of low pay, because in the end, the whole point, as Kate was reminding us earlier, is to remember that you can do more than you think you can do. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.